0: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode debates the questions raised in the final chapter of the book about the values of clubbing and whether or not the current mass success of superstar DJs represents a betrayal of those values email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host Nate Wilcox and I'm joined once again by Ryan Harkness, my colleague through this first season of techno roll. wherein. We are discussing the book Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And this, sadly, is the ultimate episode of our first series. Ryan, welcome.
1: The final chapter. We've made it the whole way through this 600-page tome.
2: Indeed, indeed. And what a journey it has been. And this last chapter is called Sellout? Question mark. Um <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like how they add the question mark. That's a nice that's a nice touch. It's a little bit of ambiguity, but I feel like if you read this chapter, you kind of get an idea that maybe the question mark wasn't there at the beginning, if you know what I mean.
2: Indeed. They're they're not keeping their cards very close to the vest. It's pretty clear where they stand on this. And that opening section has questions like or statements like Quote, club culture was built on togetherness, participation, equality, communion. The dancers are the stars, not the guy who works the record player. If we're on the dance floor, but we're all watching the DJ or in an arena, all looking at the stage, we're once more an audience and no longer the event. It sounds to me like a classic Garden of Eden tale.
1: Yeah, there's definitely... uh... There's definitely a, it was it was perfect and and then then we were ejected and I don't know uh, you know th- this is one of those things where I keep on reminding myself the book came out in in 1999 and uh, at the time you can tell that it, it was clearly made to prove that the DJ was worthy of praise and respect and then the 2006 update comes out. And the final concluding chapter of the book basically says that the current crop of DJs don't don't really deserve that same. So it's it's, it's you know throughout the book, uh, Brewster and Broughton use humor to poke at a lot of the more cheeseball elements of, of the music or the scenes and stuff like that uh, to, to to good effect. You know, um, I, I I haven't made it any secret. That I, I wasn't a big fan of the way that kind of rave gets a bit of a short shrift in comparison to some of the the, the 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 disco and the funk and the other stuff that the authors obviously kind of prefer, but it's it you know it's done in a in a humorous lighthearted way. But this final chapter, it's almost like a drunk parent lamenting how their child turned out, you know.
2: And it's funny because from 2006, they didn't even know how bad things were going to get in the teens.
1: Yeah, 2006 was like – to me, I mean that was like my kind of golden – those those were my golden years and it's it's hard and it, it, and it was hard early in the other chapters too where they were like you know oh by 1993 the drugs were terrible and it's just like you know these are these are big statements to be made for somebody who who you know in 2006 started doing drugs and found them quite quite potent thank you very much <laughs>
2: Indeed, indeed, everybody's going to have their own hero's journey, as it were. But they are cognizant enough to know that the underground is always going to be there, or at least we hope. And that yeah,
1: the last two pages were very, uh, very conciliatory and very uplifting and very positive.
2: Indeed, indeed. So they, 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 you know, are positive enough to know that there's something going on out there and they don't know exactly what it is, but they're confident that the kids have things well in hand. And every time there's a bubble and a backlash that that actually just creates new opportunities for uh, underdog kids to do things quietly and away from prying eyes that that might have a chance to develop into something. But they do tell the tale of the U.K., music bubble of the late 90s and 2000s of which their book was a contributing factor i'm sure yeah i mean uh,
1: the whole publication of the book rode the wave uh that ends up crashing up against you know this this bubble popping in 2002
2: yeah in britain and and they talk about you know that around the turn of the millennium there's there's a backlash against the super jocks and they list pete tong sasha carl cox paul oakenfold Paul Oakenfold gets thrown into every list they make, it seems like, Jeremy Healy, and they're they're talking about, you know, the scandal of DJs making 15,000 pounds a night or even 50,000 pounds a night and even the crazy, crazy 150,000 pounds a night, um, you know, offerings that that were being thrown around. And I think that was for... um, was that Vasquez, the the same DJ that wouldn't come over to Britain until 1997? I think he's the one who got. Uh, that. It might have been
1: uh, Danny Tenaglia. Uh yeah. But I, but I mean, this this hundred and fifty thousand a night, you know, and 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 again, this this update coming in 2006. This is hundred and fifty thousand. Isn't even no one blinks at that anymore when you're looking at the EDM guys like Afrojack and uh, and uh, let's see here, who David Guetta and all those guys. Those, those guys, you know shit hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a on a
2: Tuesday night <laughs> so <laughs> and it must be nice unless they're a Vici poor guy who has worked to death um, because and- he could make
1: hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a Tuesday night it's this is that uh, you know this is flying too too close to the Sun and just wanted to to, to see what's higher and higher you know
2: yep yeah it's brutal stuff and and so there's you know this period that they describe briefly the hubris before the fall where like the ministry of sound is 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 trying to pay 30 million dollars for the queen's royal yacht and branching off like they think they're virgin mega brands and and they're gonna become this eternal brand that's gonna go into vertical after vertical and everything multiple super clubs open up in london the scala home and fabric open up in 1999 with a combined capacity of seven thousand people um then the dot-com angle comes in which for anybody who was around at that time, I mean, this is the full-on Pets.com era where people think they're going to get rich selling dog food on the internet and not be an Amazon. You know, Amazon was already out there selling books, but as the camel's nose under the tent and. know with big plans already to take over the infrastructure and other idiots though were just following thinking that amazon's actually just selling books and there's going to be room for me to sell dog food or digital downloads of music which uh for a variety of reasons didn't work out the record companies didn't want anything to do with it you had to compete with napster who was just setting up a model where people could just grab stuff and run so things like trust the dj and world pop impacted the scene and people were throwing money into them but they didn't really do anything and and you you even had clubs in regional areas like Gatecrasher and Sheffield opens up and, and the, as I described in the book, they brought back the old E vibes and, and ecstasy was there. But then they complained that ecstasy had become down market and declassé and that cocaine was the new uh, sexy club drug, which is like, you know, everything old is new again. Right. Yeah. And
1: there's there. kind of a revelation that, that they're ha- everybody's having fun, but they realize they're looking pretty stupid doing it. So all of a sudden you, you have to get rid of this gurney E stuff and, and turn to something cooler like cocaine, which is uh, to me quite ridiculous.
2: Indeed. And let's, let's hear our first song. And this is Dada Life, Feed the Dada. And, and tell us why you picked this song.
1: You know, uh, for uh, for a chapter that that talks a lot about the downfall of uh, uh, the, the musical downfall of the scene. Obviously, we can't play like 20 minute snippets of DJ sets or I could, you know, show you some stuff where uh, it's just a whole bunch of hokey, uh, you know, remixes of what you'd hear on, on commercial radio. But if you want to hear basically uh, how musically devoid the big EDM, big room house sound can get, then I think this Dotto Life track is. Uh, a good uh, distillation of
2: that. So apologies to Dada Life. Nothing personal. You're just serving as an example here. Dada Life. Feed the Dada from 2012.
0: we are coming to
2: your That was Dada Life's Feed the Dada from 2012. And this is like the meme, you know, sometimes your role in life is just to be a warning for others. So consider yourself warned. Um, Yeah, I mean, and they talk about this in the book, that when you're playing a big room, you're playing a shorter set, you're brought in as a name superstar. And your job is to please the audience, so they want to come back and spend their money again, people just go for the cheap stuff and they go, you know, you've got a big crowd, it's harder to connect with them, you've got to go lowest common denominator, which means familiar songs, which means massive obvious drops after drop, after drop, after drop, just to pump the crowd up and keep them pumped and, and, and that it really erodes... The art of the DJ, which is communicating with the dance crowd and being able to communicate with with your with your club crowd, and and you know some of the old school guys, the kind of guys that would force things on their audience, you know, uh, Larry Levin style, where they would just drop something, and if the crowd didn't like it, well, I'm willing to clear the floor, and we're going to come back to this in two hours, and maybe a few stragglers will come in, and you know the game is to by the end of the night to get all the punchers out on the floor to something that you introduced to them. And it's just impossible in this massive context. And that's just a yeah,
1: there. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a shift, uh, you know, and you can read this earlier on in the book. You have nights with DJs where it's uh, just, uh, you know, one DJ playing the entire night. Larry Levan like ran, ran the place basically from midnight till 6am. A lot of these big DJs are no stranger to six to eight hour sets. But when you get into the rave scene and later on into the club scene, it happens as well. You, uh, you know, uh, promoters are so interested in stuffing the the flyer full of names to bring in the crowd that people are getting 60 minute sets, 90 minute sets. If you're lucky, the guy that you like gets two hours. But for the most part, like DJs are carrying around maybe an hour and a half worth of music and they don't have more to play than that. And uh, for me coming from a rave background, when I'm reading this chapter and I was like, wait, it's, it's I, I, I realized that that's what he's criticizing for destroying, uh, this, the style of DJing. And as that DJing style being the only style that I knew for the first, probably 10 years of my DJing career, it was very <laughs> confusing to me, but you know, now as a, as I, I, I regularly DJ out at a, at a club from 10 PM to 3 AM. And you really do realize that, uh, you know, it's not a lesser art. It's just a very different art. And there's no doubt that, uh, you know, when you only have an hour to work, you're you're playing differently and people aren't getting the deep cuts and you're not taking them on the same kind of journey. But I mean, you know, uh, most of the mixed CDs that we listen to are 70 minutes long at most, you know, physical ca- uh, limitations of, of, of a CD being as they are. And you can go on quite the journey with that. So I think, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and 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 completely. Say that you know these DJs aren't even really DJs because that's that's just a little bit of uh, you know one style of DJ criticizing another one. And We're all just DJs, man.
0: Yeah, We're all doing the same thing. It's a little thing. bit.
2: <laughs> it's a little bit of old man yells at cloud is is um, a little bit of a dynamic, but I don't want to be hard on him because um, I mean this is just an absolutely seminal book. I think this this really was the first. Book and books, as little as they're read these days, are still the way major ideas get currency in our culture. So, a handful of people read books and then proselytize what they've learned from these books. And this book laid out the history of DJs, which was the first time it had been done in book form and reached a major audience. It described the different periods of DJ music, especially, you know, with an emphasis on. The, from the late 60s from Francis Grasso and New York's early gay clubs through really the strength of the book is through Acid House 89 or so. They, they cover 90s Brit- British innovations a little bit but in a very compressed and telescoped way. I mean, this scene gets so big in and, and the acid house period that it just explodes and bifurcates and bifurcates, just totally goes fractal. And dozens of subgenres emerge out of you know house and techno. And they do a good job, I think, of summarizing some of the highlights, but they're, they're not and we'll, we'll get into this next time with Simon Reynolds' energy flash in the next series where he can really dive in and give a chapter to Trip Hop and give a chapter to, to Big Beat and, and and really analyze each of these scenes, talk about jungle at length and, and in a way that, that Brewster and Broughton just weren't able to do. But you can't do everything in one book or it'd be 2,000 pages long and, and then nobody would even be able to pick it up. But let's finish our little story. So then after the bubble comes the crash. And in in Britain, it hit in 2002, 2003. Cream closed in Liverpool, Gate Crasher crashed and shuffled. Uh, 2003, even the mighty Ministry of Sound has to relaunch. The UK uh, DJ Press implodes, music. M-U-Z-I-K, Ministry, and Jockey Slut all closed down. Mixed Mags loses more than a third of its readers. And they point out that, um, you know, fuddy-duddy dad rock mags like Mojo and Uncut the kind of the crap I was subscribing to <laughs> at the time, um, which are great magazines. I'm just using the term crap, you know, rhetorically. But that 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 there was that stuff was growing. There was a big audience for that. But that the, the press that had built the 90s Dance for Revolution in Britain kind of imploded, and and there wasn't that same market. And then and you they said you
1: got to kind of blame that to a certain degree on the internet really doing a number on the magazine st- magazine industry in general, but but especially you know for a for a, a a magazine that's targeting young kids, the internet comes along and all these people. That, that are buying these magazines to see the, the flyers for all the events for everything that are going on. They just go online now and they get their information uh, via community boards and event pages. And you no longer have to pay like, you know, $12, $15 for this magazine in order to, to get this kind of stuff. You can even read half the articles for free on the Internet. So uh, it's it's the same thing that kind of happens across the board. It's the same thing that happened to the music industry is that it gets its legs cut out from underneath it by the Internet. Uh, so, and, and, but, you know, there's a, a certain amount of legitimacy lost like those magazines, as we spoke about in the, uh, superstar chapter, uh, there, there was a, a back and forth, a self licking ice cream cone of, uh, of, of building up that happened through those. And once you lose those, or once they're no longer as, as seen as much, then, then you're, you're seen no longer, you can no longer hold that, that, that chief vision of the scene together. And it all starts to splinter.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and also you had a, a phenomenon where those same aging DJs or DJs that he was complaining about in the last segment, the boom times, now they're aging. And so you got people in their in their late twenties, people in their dreaded thirties, even some people in their forties playing to clubbers who are in that sweet spot of stay up all night, eighteen to twenty-two, eighteen to twenty-five, whatever, you know, when you're physically capable of partying all day and all night and doing it you know all weekend and then going to work on monday so just a kind of an uncomfortable reality that 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 happened there and and it just you know implodes in britain but meanwhile things are building in in the the states but let's play our next song this is botnik through the night the snails remix again from 2012 and why did you pick this one
1: Uh, This was kind of a counter to to make up for the slagging of of the EDM scene in general and big room house and everything like that. Because if we're going to talk about, you know, the, the American EDM scene and how it how uh, it's a bit of a sellout scene or something like that or there's nothing legitimate going on uh, it big room house that that big big drop minimal minimal bass sound uh, it's just an extension of another electronic genre and there's a bunch of weird sonic stuff going on there too so i wanted to throw something in there that kind of shows you know it might not be your cup of tea but there's still evolution happening in this strange kind of corner that's become the new mainstream uh, attention point for for dance music at this part of the scene's evolution
2: all right so this is botnik through the night the snails remix botnik through the night the snails remix so keeping hope alive and and showing that that creative things are still going on and and definitely you know was a creative period i mean there's tons of stuff going on and and you know they recognize that that even though the scene collapsed in britain it was continuing to grow elsewhere and that you know the next section is therefore called the u.s ultra bubble which to my knowledge, still hasn't popped, even though um, you know you have the 2015, tw- 2009 to 2015 period, or maybe 2006 after the Daft Punk Coachella appearance, where EDM just gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the States. And it kind of crested in 2015, I want to say. I mean, I'm definitely no expert on this era of music, but I feel like the commercial and artistic Possibilities that people were thinking were going to happen for EDM maybe didn't quite come true after that.
1: Well, I mean it's uh, you know the, the perfect word for what happened in the UK was the bubble popped, because uh, you know the scene didn't collapse, the the bubble popped. It was just the artificial inflation that 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 disappeared after the bubble. You know, uh, dance music didn't wasn't did, didn't go away. And you could still you could still find a lot of great events and there was still a lot of enthusiasm and, and a lot of shows It was just, you know, the no effort bottle service prog nights Disappeared because no one was into that and the big marketing money kind of went away uh, sucking the oxygen out of you know uh, That kind of top tier Level you could no longer, you know, have three thousand person clubs in town All hammering the same stuff and having them packed and in america, you know, they, they say it's a bubble And I think maybe maybe because it grew slower uh, or maybe just because Americans love to rave so much now that they're legally allowed to do it without getting nailed with crack house laws, that uh, what what you're seeing is is the actual numbers. And there's, you know, it, it exploded, but is it a bubble. So, and I, I don't know, uh, we'll, we'll I guess we'll find out, but the festival industry, the dance music festivals are still just getting bigger. As far as I can tell, dance music just continues to infiltrate more and more clubs and bars and pubs and stuff like that. And it's almost impossible to escape, but I don't know, you know, I think it's, it's been long enough that we can safely say it's not a
3: fad.
2: Yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. It's it's a genre with a lengthy history going back, you know, to the early '70s. Depending on how you want to define it, but at the very least, to me, the late '70s. By the time you get to Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer, you've got full blown EDM, electronic dance music, you know, and full effect craftwork as well. And and I also talk about another thing that emerges in this era is the ability of the superstar DJ to function as an independent mogul with a global personal marketing machine and they're talking about web 2.0 they're talking about facebook twitter myspace in the 2000s was an absolutely huge um, medium for delivering music calvin harris for example Broke out on MySpace. You know, he, he tried to make it in London and failed, and then and then goes back to Scotland, licking his wounds, and starts posting stuff on MySpace, and and it and it happens, and it's easy in tw- from 2021 to pretend that MySpace never happened or that it was inevitably going to be destroyed by Facebook, um, and the fact that they've lost most of the music that was uploaded to MySpace, oh, just an absolute musical tragedy. I mean, we're talking about something like 50 million tracks that were stored up on myspace and are now gone
1: yeah groove shark was another one that disappeared with a ton of music that probably isn't going to get replicated and every time there's a youtube channel that gets copyright striked out of existence uh you know because one of the mixes and in this guy's you know classic acid house things was claimed by sony (laughs) it's just it makes you it makes you cry inside
2: yeah it's um you know on the one hand we have this unprecedented ability to store and transmit music around the world but at the same time with the exponential increase in volume of music that's being stored it means an exponential increase in the difficulty of archiving this stuff it's not just a matter of collecting a few 78s anymore um and even the 78s weren't all collected you know we lost a lot of stuff uh, as those eras ended and wax cylinders certainly didn't prove to be a great long-term storage solution so you know, we might have seen the peak of music availability around the turn of the millennium when everything, so many things were being put on CD and things were available on the internet. And then, you know, you had MySpace and, and other services distributing this stuff. But yeah, like you say, easy come, easy go. And another trend they talk about, and and this is another one that's only increased, and that's the internationalism of this, that the... the Nadies, as they call the two, the decade of the 2000s, the first decade of the new millennium, there became a super jock circuit that went from Beijing to Buenos Aires, from Moscow to Sao Paulo, Singapore, Shanghai, and then once it breaks in um, in the states in the 2010s, they added Miami, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and that's another weird thing. Like my my copy says it was printed in 2006, and there are definitely references to the 2010s in this last chapter and what happened. So. Did you notice that? I
1: didn't notice that, but I, I definitely in the last when I'm reading the last chapter, I kept on I kept on going back and confirming. Okay, they said they said two thousand six is when it was last updated because it did seem like like some of the some of the context of the things that they were talking about or at least complaining about, again to me, 2006 was I was having, you know, as much fun as you can have. So I, I kind of suspect that maybe something, you know, there was the revised and then maybe the little bit of updates in there or something like that. I don't yeah. know. I, I but I checked, I checked the front of the book to see, to 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 see the specific dates on it a couple of times because I was a bit confused.
2: Yeah, but take a look at page 550 if you have the purported 2006, because it says the naughty superjock circuit, and then the next sentence is a decade later, with the youth of America declaring themselves born again dance fans, and it talks about how the circuit expanded to include Miami, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. So. Something's fishy going on, either they're psychic uh, seers and Nostradamus um, or they've been secretly updating the book. So hopefully I'm still trying to track down Brewster and Broughton and, and hopefully we'll be able to talk to them at some point it seems like they were a lot more available and a lot more online a few years ago than they are now so um, anyway if you're listening guys we're definitely looking for you and would love to talk to you and and
1: And we're definitely not as uh, critical as we might have come across in 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 this in this whole (laughs) podcast I gotta say you know know, there's there's a certain amount of talking shit that that gets done uh, but I've got nothing but the utmost of respect not only for the book but for the authors and going through and and finding all of uh, Bill Brewster's uh, YouTube videos and DJ sets and stuff like that is a guy that you can't deny, uh, yeah. and Frank broughton as well because I feel like I've given him short shrift. I found some of his old mixes on SoundCloud, and both these guys know what they're talking about and know what they're doing, and uh, and are serious DJs.
2: Yeah, and serious music historians. So uh, you know, we we didn't spend twenty plus weeks doing a podcast series on this because we didn't like the book. We love the book. Um. So yeah. So last notes I want to hit on that 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 they do mention and this again stuff about that happened in the 2010s that the fees go way beyond 150,000 uh, pounds a night and Steve Wynn's Las Vegas Club XS is supposedly banking a million dollars in revenue a night so it's easy you know paying a DJ 200,000 dollars is nothing you know 20% of your of your gross for the draw that brings the crowd in and so yeah
1: again, I mean, if you, if you if you look at the numbers um a thousand people paying $50 a ticket is $50,000. And a lot of these events, you're know, you obviously the club owners are making lots of money off drinks, bottle service, VIP, everything else like that. When you take a look at the economics of it, the only reason these fees are getting offered up is because this money is getting made. And there's, again, when we're talking about the UK bubble, a big part of the bubble was the fact that marketing Uh, People came in and uh, a bunch of cigarette companies and alcohol companies and cell phone companies started like uh, giving promoters tons and tons of extra cash, which also got sucked up into the DJ's pockets. And, you know, um, coming from certain other backgrounds uh, where, where the people who are making the money for the owners don't make that money, it's hard for me to feel bad uh for for you know the club owners having to pay this much money to these dj guys you know it's it's like one of these genres where oh the economy actually kind of like slipped in the way of the of the music makers or the music players oh like cry me a river
2: (laughs) yeah exactly and let's take a quick break for our sponsors and then hopefully we'll be crying a river all the way to the bank as we continue as they are want to do they they decry the superstar circuit and that the, you know the superstar circuit is is killing the art of djing but then the, the next section is dj's democratic future DJing's democratic future and they talk about some of the technological things that changed to make it even easier to create beats and to do remixes that eventually the technology arrived such that you could play a dj set With CDs, but still scratch and remix and beat match and blend the way you could with vinyl. And further after that, there's a next phase when you can do all of that with laptops, with MP3s or WAV files on your laptop, and things like Shazam, you know, an app on your phone that you can push a button and it can generally tell you what song you're hearing. I mean, I rarely run across something that Shazam can't suss out, even if I'm watching TV and they've got dialogue going over the music in the background of various things. So, um, and then Ableton software, which allows not just easy desktop mixing, but live remixing so that there's new tools that I think have allowed the art theoretically to continue advancing.
1: Yeah. And this is an area where there's a lot of gatekeeping typically. And I like that these guys are just gates are open. Come on in, you know, like the, it took a while for the snobbery to come off of what, what you were DJing with and, and, and uh you know it's still there i suppose to a degree with uh you know people people showing up with dj controllers and and laptops and stuff like that they still get a bit of short shrift because at this point you show up in their cdjs and they've got like usb input so if you're showing up with a controller it kind of makes people wonder whether or not you can't play on the On the official gear but you know to me controllers often have custom fx and loop capabilities and stuff like that if this person here has mastered the art of djing on their controller why would they want to you know use uh, maybe you know a different mixer or a slightly different cdj that might have slightly different jog properties or a weird crossfader or whatever else when you can just get your own stuff so but the the amount of snobbery that i experienced back in the day in like 1999 when i showed up with my rack mount cdjs and I had to bring uh, a record player lid so I could put it on top of the record player and put my CDJs down on top of it because there's no room for anything else other than <laughs> just the turntables. Oh boy, man, I was I was one of the more controversial DJs in my city because I was right out there up in front with CDs DJing, and uh, you know there was a, a DJ competition where you buy a drink and you get a vote. Very genius format, let me tell you. And in the finals, <laughs> in the finals, my competition just brought together the entire city's collection of vinyl purists and they blew me out of the water (laughs) i was okay with it it was still fun
2: yeah yeah so i have in my notes that i want to read a paragraph from page 557 that that's sort of a valedictory about the whole book that they wrote here so so bear with me as i quote The Disc Jockey has been with us for over a century. In that time he has been ignored, misunderstood, despised, worshipped, and adored. He has stayed in the forefront of music, twisting and shaping it into fresh forms, perverting technology and forcing from it stunning new sounds. He has conjured a long series of novel genres and his endless search for material to keep his dancers moving. In the U.S., the DJ created amazing music. Then the U.K. gave him a home and made him a star. He continued his magic, and around him there grew a musical culture more revolutionary and more enduring than any before. Which that Two things about that. First, it's he, 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 and we've talked about that, that, that the history of the DJ they're telling – through this book is overwhelmingly about men. They do try to mention some female DJs, but I think there's more to that story than they talk about. The second thing is a musical culture more revolutionary and more enduring than any before. I mean, that's never going to be true. Anytime anybody (laughs) says that, that, (laughs) they're obviously... You know, uh, 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 gilding the lily a little bit, it, it was a revolutionary scene, it has endured for quite a while. But I think any serious student of jazz or rock, um, will tell you, or hip hop will tell you, uh, those genres were pretty revolutionary too, and quite enduring. Uh, opera, you know, I think uh, has a pretty good claim uh, at, at having endured almost half a millennia. Um, Just the fact, being-
1: though, that we're in the conversation now is uh, is good enough for me. And uh, who knows where it's going to be in, in another twenty five, thirty years, or whatever else like that. I mean, you know, uh, that that heartbeat four four. Dance beat ain't going anywhere. And I feel like it's just going to continue to, uh, to shape things. So it, to me, it's not about, you know, being, being the most important or anything else like that. So long as I don't have to deal with, you know, all my friends dismissing me and my music as a joke, then I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with whatever, wherever we want to put it in the pantheon.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a long way since raucous like me were running around in the 90s with her guitars, you know, denouncing all that computer crap and and uh, techno garbage and cetera, Is this even
1: music? Is this even music? From a legal standpoint, is it even like, do we have to put in specific wording to include electronic music because it's just
2: garbage trash? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, and, and Brewster and Broughton were a big part of changing that. I mean, for somebody like me, if I can read about something – uh, then I can understand it in a way that I am not smart enough or intuitive enough to get just from hearing the music and watching people mix, which I had done. Even had friends or roommate that that became a dance DJ for a while, and it was still just totally opaque to me. I could not figure out what he was doing. And it's funny because he had mix Maglin around the house. I could have read that, I guess, but it it needed to be collected into a tome. Uh, and and literally Ed Ward had to tell me to read it. So.
1: You know, even even MixMag wouldn't have taught you because MixMag is is just the magazine equivalent for the most part. Of, of those, like the the dozens of modern EDM documentaries you told me that you were checking out about Tiesto or Armin van Buren, where it's just, they're just showing them on tour, having fun and partying. And, you know, it's, it's more about the lifestyle than it was about the history with all of, with a lot of those magazines. Obviously you have some features and stuff like that, but this book, uh, you know, you never would have heard anything about like basically the first 10 chapters of the book never would have made it into, into any magazines. And that's with, that's with Bill Broughton being like a mixed mag editor for a while, you know? So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think this is a good time to run through and, and run through some of the, the sections of the book and and what we thought about them. I mean, uh, the introduction obviously covered some of their, some grandiosity on their part about the DJs, shamans, and et cetera, et cetera. But also I, I like a lot of that stuff and agree with it, so um, I'm glad it's in there. Your thoughts on the the cosmic vision of of the book?
1: I mean, I think it I think it it does 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 what it set out to do. And they've written the essential tome, which is you know, there's no greater accomplishment than that to write a book so good about a topic that it, it takes the number one spot as the DJ history book and then holds it for for over 20 years. That's that's amazing. Like if you Google like books on the history of DJing. It's all last night at DJ saved my life for like two pages. And then there's another one called the record players, which turns out to be a 2010 follow-up from Brewster and brought again, which is interviews done for last night at DJ saved my life. So they really cornered, they, they really cornered the market on this and, and hit it hard and did it right. And, and nobody even bother has bothered to try and unseat them. And and do it differently. So you know the proof is right there that they 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 made an enduring uh, legacy with with this DJ history book.
2: Absolutely, and people like Simon Reynolds and and Michaelangelo Matos have continued their work or expanded on it. But um, yeah, nobody's trying to go back and and rewrite their history of the beginnings of disco, for example. Um, and and I haven't really seen anything. I think I think the first. The second and third chapters on the first DJs in radio and the first DJs in clubs, those topics have been covered at length in other places, but not in the context of where the DJ is going to go, just in the context, you know, books, histories of the radio or um, tell it, you know, act as if the the disc jockey on the radio is the end of the story and not yeah, realizing. broadcast
1: broadcast journalism courses or you know early rock
2: history yeah yeah and so so they're the first ones to put that stuff in context but i'm really glad they did and things like telling the story of jimmy Savile, which Is a story that probably would get way underplayed now because of the things, the horrible things we've learned about him uh, and his conduct. Although people were calling him out, Johnny Rotten was calling him out on live TV in 1978, so you know it was kind of an open secret. But it was just an open secret we'd collectively decided not to care about. But nonetheless, Saville is very important. Saville is very important as the first guy we know of to ever charge admission to hear somebody play records. Just a massive massive feat and obviously he was a huge part of the british pop scene from the 50s all the way to the end of the century so just a monumental figure in pop and i think we need to wrestle with the monsters that we create uh with this by turning music into a business and an industry and a money-making proposition then you get into the whole northern soul reggae thing and i remember when i was reading the book rebelling against those chapters like why do i care about northern soul which is Totally this cul-de-sac that never amounted to anything or meant anything, but I think that they prove their case that Northern Soul is the scene that made Acid House possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They made a really good point. And I, I agree. The first time I read it in like 2000 or something like that, I was just like, get to the rave part, get to the techno. And I didn't I, did, I mean, I was an idiot. I was stupid. And and if, if I had actually read through the book like I should have, I would have moved forward um, a much more educated music listener uh, and, and with a lot more respect for where a lot of the elements of the genres that I did like came from.
2: Absolutely. And it's time for another track and let's hear one out of a Frank Broughton set. This is the Orlando Riva Sound Body to Body Boogie. Tell us why you picked this one.
1: I just uh, you know I I did a little bit more digging. Uh, th- this book is all about listening to listening to stuff as you go along and so you know as we finished up the book I listened to some more sets from the authors and and thought it would be a nice way to wrap up the show to to show, you know, a little just a little snippet of the kind of music that they were
2: choosing too. So Cool. Well, let's check it out. This is the Orlando Riva Sound, Body to Body Boogie from 1979. And this is from a Frank Broughton mix. <laughs> that was Frank Broughton mixing the Orlando Riva sound, Body to Body Boogie. He's not really mixing that track, but it's from a club mix that he did. Um, And yeah, and I, I know you were thinking that would be the valedictory thing, but I wanted to save your 2021 track for the last track. So we'll come to that at the end of the show. And let's keep going our survey of the book. I mean, the reggae chapter was a, yet another one that I kind of balked at. And I also balked at it because other reggae histories I had read had such a different perspective. They were the first ones, to my knowledge, to write it from a DJ perspective and really make the point that even early pre-reggae genres, and they use reggae as a catch-all to cover j- Jamaican music, I think, because they talk about Blue Beat and ska, these precursors to reggae, as being also DJ-driven music. Well, yeah, they were recorded by bands and studios, but... They were essentially being recorded to play on these sound systems at these street parties. And the music was being driven by the DJs, heard by people through the sound systems first. People were not seeing live ska bands because those musicians were playing um, Calypso and stuff to rich white people on the other side of the island at night. They'd go to the studio and cut ska. There was no touring ska. There was no touring base for ska musicians to play as ska bands. That didn't happen until... Um, you know, Island Records brings Bob Marley over to England and 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 gets the Whalers, who were a vocal group and that had been backed by studio musicians, and gets them really set up with a band, and touring, and morphs into kind of a rock context, which is a tension we see them described throughout this, and and their coverage of hip hop is the same way, where they make a pretty strong case that hip-hop emerges from DJ culture. I don't think anybody can argue with that. But I also think they make a good case that hip-hop moves into becoming a listening and a concert music rather than a dance music first. Like after Electro, after the early 80s, hip-hop becomes album-oriented rock in a way. Nothing against it. and It, it picks up a very proud lineage. And, and artists like the Wu-Tang Clan or, you know, listened to by obsessive with headphones kind of the way the beatles or led zeppel was listened to 20 years earlier so it's a valid thing but i think i think i don't know i would kind of flip the order like i think they should have done hip-hop before they did high energy because i think high energy really sets the scene for acid house and kind of functions as the straw man to be knocked over by acid house
1: I don't. I don't remember the the order if it was hip hop and then and then high energy. But hip hop was was important because of how much they it it, it evolved the skills of the DJ. Um, I think up until that point you had a lot of guys doing a lot of rough mixing uh, on a lot of rough equipment. And this is you know if I, if we're going to talk about small gripes or weaknesses with the book, as far as I'm concerned, um, the big thing when when tech twelve turntables don't even make it into the index, I feel like that's a bit of an oversight. Because because they're talking about you know early, early 70s DJs mixing and they don't really talk too much about the gear that they're using or the difficulties that you would have on them. And let me tell you, everything before the Tech 12 was basically like – it was a hard time. So I just – Yeah, uh, that is
2: a, an interesting oversight. It's like writing a history of 60s rock and not talking about – martial amps you know it's just this fundamentally critical piece of technology um but you know you read ulysses s grant's memoirs of the civil war and the word rifle i think appears once so uh i guess it depends on your vantage point um but it does kind of clue you in that these guys were not necessarily working djs in the 70s that they're looking back at this period and maybe taking those turntables for granted
1: yeah. Or maybe just, it's another one of those things that ended up on the cutting room floor. Cause I really, uh, yeah. when you look at the idea that they have this second book, which is, you know, a follow up with all the interviews, DJs in their own words, being able to talk about more than just the history of DJing, but you know, their place in the scene and what the scene was like, uh, for the partiers and everything else like that. Cause it's a completely different view when you're looking at it as a history of DJing versus uh, a, a history of, of the party scene and the people in it and what was going on. And, uh, you know, the amount of times they must have had to have reined themselves in and reeled themselves in, I figure it must have been high.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm sure there was a lot of uh, files deleted or paper thrown up and watered into the trash can because they had to cut, cut, cut with no mercy. Um, and yeah, and, and the, it's pretty clear from the things we've added to their chapter roster, because we compressed the first, the second, and third chapters into one episode. But then we added chapters on uh pre-hip-hop djs which are basically straight black djs in the burrows which they mention in their hip-hop chapters but they i really think that could have been a whole chapter because of the significance of people like dj hollywood and grandmaster flowers you know i've come to this point having been a really violently opinionated amateur music critic most of my life but i've come to this point where i don't even feel qualified to criticize music like it's magic i mean and 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 all i can do is watch which of these magicians get reactions from their audience that's that's an objective quantifiable thing my personal opinion about the music doesn't really mean anything um therefore the influence a musician has is one of the ways you can tell who's worth talking about and to me grandmaster flowers and dj hollywood i mean they're their influence can barely be measured. They're they're easily as influential as Francis Grasso or other people that get, you know, loving attention. And then the other chapter that we felt compelled to add was a a section on trance, which they jam trance into their techno chapter. So, um, but otherwise, I really feel like the section from chapter 11 all the way through 15 is the meat of the book and the really, uh, the essential part of the book. I mean, the history of the disco of disco as well, from a DJ vantage point, is also essential. But the second phase, where they talk about the sort of modern forms of EDM, uh, just absolutely essential.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the book. The book started out uh, when they were first germinating it. They originally wanted to to, to do a history of kind of New York disco. Uh, in general. And then their editor kind of came back and said, well, this is, this is maybe a bit, a bit thin or narrow. Let's open it up and do, and do the whole history. And all of a sudden you can kind of realize why, you know, maybe there's like a fat 200 page section that really, once, once you think you're at a disco, Oh, we're going back in.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're being dragged back in. Well, I mean, um,
1: there's no there's no denying the fact that uh, it, the disco in New York, uh, it, it set the groundwork and and it, and it made the like everything kind of s- comes out of that as well. So it's not like it's not like it doesn't deserve that that time for the story to be told.
2: Absolutely. And the fact that there was such a vicious and extended backlash against disco makes it even more important to tell that story and celebrate those triumphs. Because the fact that people like David Mancuso invented a musical form in a completely new way as DJs rather than musicians, nobody had ever done that before. And the way it exploded into mass popularity so fast, and it turns out it was too too much too soon, but that tells you it was a real revolution. I mean, disco, like they say, is one of those forms that virtually everybody instinctively accepts wow, there's a bunch of people dancing and having fun to 4-4 music played by a DJ. Get me in there. you know. I mean, obviously there's a backlash and a reaction against it, but it, it was a massively, massively appealing form. And Steph's been telling me not to say massively so much, so uh, <laughs> zap me with an electric shock there. Well, let's play our last uh, song snippet. And this is a 2021 track that you selected by Golf Clap, Lose It. Why'd you pick this one?
1: I, you know, after after kind of just delving into some uh, kind of EDM, quote unquote, garbage, I thought that it would be a good idea to just throw throw out, you know, what's coming out now as far as kind of cutting edge house music and uh, the tight production that's going on there. And th- there's still a lot of uncomplicated dance music that's just being written to make you shake your ass.
2: And this is Golf Clap. Lose it.
0: Watch me lose it.
2: was golf claps lose it from 2021 and i can testify that my kids in the car on the way to uh summer camp today uh appreciated this one the most of all the tracks that you had selected for this show so um And it's interesting
1: to to, nice, nice. But it's interesting to note, you know, like what is that? This is the Frankenstein's monster of all the genres before, because it's 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 house and it's techno, and it's it's everything all wrapped together. Uh, It's the true amalgamation of of everything that came before it, just morphed into something that is just as easy to digest and and obvious as to what you need to do when you hear it, as uh, you know the most classic and purest of disco tracks.
2: Cool. And, you know, as we continue this series, you're going to have to educate me on these genres and terminologies because it's – I've trained myself now. I can pretty much tell the difference between 80s Chicago house and 80s Detroit techno. But by the time you get into the 90s, the noughties, and the 2010s, it's very hard for me to tell, oh, this is house, this is techno, like these these distinctions. So looking forward to reading more, listening more and learning more to try to have a, a foot-on-the-ground feeling um, for these different strains and different genres. And and like all strains and genres, it's an artificial distinction. Musicians, as a rule, tell you, are, are the least focused on genre. And people like Avicii, who's doing bro country tracks and having big EDM hits with it in the, in the 2010s, definitely interesting not something i was expecting i can remember hearing some of those tracks when they were big um but so yeah i was looking forward to talking about all that stuff But let's talk a little bit more about the meat of the book the garage or garage as we say in the uk house techno belieric, bellier, uh, acid house pretty distinct genres and each of them has continued to make an impact through the next couple of decades is that a fair statement
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Obviously you don't get very far without without uh, the techno or, or house uh, revolutions that kind of uh, uh, technologically change the sound of music and and then Balearic being uh, basically the lesson it, for the UK to learn that it's okay to mix everything together you know you have you, when you're talking about genres and and how you're excited to know a little bit it's always you got to watch out you don't want to slide into genre fascism which can happen and you know after a while you have situations like during the UK bubble where they're up at the top. There was a monoculture of music uh, and of the kinds that was socially acceptable to play in these clubs that guys like Judge Jules was like, I don't even want to be playing this anymore. But if I don't, they're going to throw beer bottles at me. So, you know, there's a Balearic opened everybody's eyes to the fact that you can mix that uh, new order track uh, into this funk track and it's okay. And, uh, you know, that's, I think to me, if you want to tell a DJ one thing, it's that, so I thought it was uh, that was an important kind of chapter. The acid house stuff, I- important to, to explain the history of how it all kind of came together and it happened. But I feel like at that point, the scene blows up so much and goes in so many different directions that he can, you know, the book only really follows one or two threads as to what's going on. And, you know, that there's thousands of others going on underneath that, again, we'll get into with Energy Flash and uh, the Underground is massive and other books like that.
2: Absolutely. And 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 definitely looking forward to that. And and I've talked to Simon Reynolds before, so I'm reasonably confident confident we can get him back to talk about Energy Flash at some point. And so yeah, this has been awesome, Ryan. We've 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 done 20 plus episodes on this massive tome, Frank Broughton and Bill Brewster's last night at DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey. We're going to take a a brief break, so my history of country music with James Porter, based on Ken Burns' Country Music Series and Bill C. Malone's Country Music USA, can run its course for eight weeks, and then Ryan and I will be back. And so I just... I kind of love throwing that at people, like you get a bunch of techno heads in the habit of listening to us on Thursdays and then throw country music at them. So we'll see. (laughs) It's good.
1: I I like it. I like having, uh, you know, one week it's Nine Inch Nails and the next week it's, uh, you know, like Outlaw Country. I'm down with that.
2: (laughs) Cool. So hopefully people can stick with us. And if not, come back in eight weeks and we'll be talking about Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash. So, Ryan, thank you very much. It's been a delight. And we'll be back.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let it Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to conclude their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with an interview with the authors. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.
3: Today's must-have trends and innovative styles at mrs b's clearance and outlet shop one-of-a-kind finds in today's must-have trends explore wall-to-wall deals furniture flooring mattresses home accents seasonal favorites and more discover unique new home decor
1: pillows accessories and more there's something perfect for your style and budget there's new inventory every day at up to 80 percent off suggested retail discover the style and savings of mrs b's clearance and outlet